What up, homie? Uh, it's Mike, and welcome to the Mike Mantel podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Sincere appreciation there. So this podcast is an exploration of wisdom in today's worlds. Me investigating the intimacy movement, consciousness movement, personal growth movement, seeing how these three movements intersect, collide, intermingle, and synergize with each other. So today I talked with Jason Saran, and Jason is a mentalist, and I was so stoked to talk with him, and it was such, it was really, it was a refreshing, really interesting conversation. So he'll describe much better what mentalism is than I will, uh, but like famous mentalists are like Darren Brown is the most famous, but essentially it's people who are using different psychological principles of influence and cold reading and performative aspects and connection in order to appear like they're conducting magic essentially so it was really fascinating because jason super uh, open-minded guy very humble and also holds a materialist framework that's part of the reason i was interested to explore mentalism is because from what I know of what I've studied it, it seems like it attra- there's a large overlap between folks with materialist framework and folks who are into mentalism. And, you know, it's really interesting. Like a lot of people in this world are, part of what they do is dispel illusions that people have about how reality works. And so Jason, one of the things he does, one of his main performance acts is a seance that he does in New York. So he studied like historical seances. He's made this like really aesthetically pinpointed, uh, like spooky setting and invites people in and does all these like mind reading tricks and has people commune with folks who have died in their life and just creates this whole theatrical deep performance. Now it's interesting though, because Jason isn't claiming to be psychic. He's not claiming to be able to communicate with the dead. He's not claiming to be able to read minds. He's very upfront about that. He is using psychological principles in order to create the illusion that he's doing those things. So we got into all this in this conversation and more. We just talked about his journey in general, talked about death, talked about uh, frauds and charlatans. Uh, it It was really cool. And... Part of the reason I really appreciated Jason's viewpoint is, I say this at the very end of the episode too, but when I was traveling a couple years ago, I was living in Guatemala and was part of a chess club, actually. And the leader of the chess club told me something that really stuck with me once. He said, and I guess I should also say, this town I was living in, I liked it a lot, uh, but it was like this town on a small lake in Guatemala. Uh, It was essentially gentrified by a bunch of westerners um but it was like people who were like spiritual healers and massage therapists and so it was a crazy place all these new age people every day there's like a tantra workshop there's like psychedelic stuff happening there's people selling mushrooms there's like ecstatic dance happening all the time there's an ashram there's people meditating it was just this insane vortex of spiritual pursuit but it was very deeply infused with new age philosophy, which in and of itself, I don't have a problem with, but I just noticed that a lot of people of that framework tend to be 
uh, tend to want to believe things, uh, tend to want, tend to look extra hard for meaning in situations that might not have meaning, and tend to just want to believe things that are fantastical, that just seem to be the habit pattern of these people. So this dude who is the leader of the chess club, he was not a visitor there like the people I was referring to. He lived there, but he was like super grounded, really wise, just this dope ass musician who lived in Guatemala and played chess. And he told me that as a human, as you're building your worldview, it's gonna fall somewhere in between gullible and cynical. And you don't wanna be too far on either end, in his opinion. And I really dug that. Uh, like, I find that oftentimes people in the New Age world, not everyone, but obviously, but a lot of people I've met can fall pretty far in the global realm. And oftentimes people in the, I don't know, like the corporate world or the world of scientific paradigm or the world of materialism can fall pretty far in the cynical realm. And I think on either side of that, you miss a lot. If you're too cynical, I really think you miss the magic of the world and miss allowing yourself to take faith in things that are possible in reality and let yourself experience some of the crazy psychedelic opportunities of this world. And if you're too far in the global realm, then you're just not planted in reality. You're you're making believe and you're living in this fictional world and just floating off from what's actually happening. And so it's nice to be somewhere in the middle. And I liked talking with Jason today because I don't consider him cynical at all, but he's definitely more on that end of the spectrum than I am and than most people that I'm in community with. And I thought that was really refreshing and grounding and just gave me a different viewpoint and perspective. And it was, it was cool. I just really appreciated this conversation. He was a, he was a great dude to chat with. My listener friend, I want to thank you for listening. Uh, yeah, just want to express gratitude that you're here, that your ears are open, that your mind is open, absorbing the following information. It means a lot. It means a lot to me for you to join me on this leg of my journey. If you want to support this podcast in a tangible way, give it some amount of star rating on iTunes or wherever you listen, uh, whatever feels resonant. Five would be awesome, but you know, whatever feels true to you. I would much appreciate that and it would be very helpful. All right, that's all I got today. Happy month of May. We're in spring. Spring is a beautiful season. Hope you enjoy the flowers everywhere. Oh, I love flowers, so beautiful. They bring so much joy, flowers do. All right, conversation with Jason Saran. I will see you in there. Boom. All right, Jason. Yeah, okay. I guess the first thing just to get some context is I, I, so you're a mentalist, a magician, seems like a performer as well, but I'm curious if you could just break down what those words mean or how you would describe what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a magician is kind of self-explanatory, I think. You know, somebody who, who performs impossible or seemingly impossible things. Uh, mentalism is a subgenre of that. Uh, it has a little bit of a different history and a little bit of a different origin point. But uh, it's essentially uh, magic designed to simulate psychic phenomena. So telepathy, mind reading, um, spoon bending, things like that, all kind of fall under the umbrella of mentalism. But it comes from a slightly different place. Got it. Within the range of magic, is there something that's been 
a branch that's been like inspiring you and or pulling your attention? Well, it's the mentalism for sure. Um, that's what I do uh, for a living most of the time. So when when people are booking me, they're booking me uh, because of the mentalism and the sort of psychological illusions. Uh, I started out as a magician and and still uh, do sleight of hand and visual magic uh, with my friends and for myself, but it's it's not as big of a part. And I consult on it occasionally, but it's not as big of a part of what I perform just because it's not where where my interests sort of led me. Right. Okay, cool. So mentalism is like, it seems like using magic in the sleight of hand stuff, except just in the, the realm of mind and not physically necessarily. Yeah, it, it, it's just replicating a different or simulating, I should say, a different kind of impossible. Yeah, I've, I was I was just really digging. Uh, I was studying a lot of mentalism before this and watching videos on it. And it's, it's, it's really trippy. It's super trippy. And I guess what I... I don't know if this is true, but it seems like there's two sides to it. One is cold read or like reading someone based on tells they're giving. And then the other is influencing people. Is that a fair like uh, binary that you're either you're either influencing and giving getting output or like really subtly picking up on on what they're putting out? I would say that that is uh, both of those things are certainly components of it, but I'd say you're missing a pretty I'd say you're missing two pretty huge components of it. Uh, I would say maybe maybe it's 25, 25, 25, 25. Because the other two components are, are of course, showmanship, which is, you know, I would say in, in some ways bigger than the other two, than reading somebody or being able to influence them. You'd be shocked what you can get away with on pure confidence and what will fail if you don't have that. And then the fourth component is traditional magic methods, right? So sleight of hand, misdirection, which are absolutely tools in the mentalist toolkit. They just get played down as opposed to within magic. Okay. Yeah. So maybe we can talk about uh, the seance a little bit, because I know that's one of the big things that you do and it that the showmanship seems to be a big part of that. Yeah. I don't know to what extent you want to describe that, but I'm curious, what what is that experience or what's at least the outlines of that experience? Yeah, so uh, earlier when I when I sort of mentioned that mentalism has a different origin point than magic, what I was kind of referring to was mediumship and the spiritualist era in sort of the late 1800s. And that's where a vast majority of the of the tools came from and where the techniques and the skills were honed and developed. And so when you study mentalism, you you inevitably end up learning about that era and and that art form right? The seances. And as I was studying that, I kind of just, I, I, I couldn't shake the feeling of something was being done in those rooms that's worth preserving, right? There was something to me about the aesthetic and the wonder of it and just the sheer audacity of it uh, that, that I was really interested in bringing back to life in, in some way or another. And so for me, the question became, how do I, how do I replicate a seance? How do I sort of uh, pay, pay tribute to that form of art and expression without doing something dishonest, right? Without taking advantage of my audience in, uh, in a way that would be genuinely dishonest. And what would qualify as taking advantage? I think talking to the dead for people or, or, or convincing people that you or someone else really can. I think that would be uh, intrinsically dishonest in a in a different way than the agreement 
made between a magician or a mentalist and the audience, which is that I'm going to fool you, but you're going to know that I'm fooling you. You may not know how, you may not know how it's even possible that I that I could have been tricking you just now, but you understand that that is what's happening. There's a theatrical conceit that that protects the integrity of it. That's a super interesting part about it, because I guess if you don't go in with that transparency, but you're doing the exact same performance, it has a, f- a totally different spin. It's creating a totally different reality, I suppose, for the spectators. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's night and day in terms of the experience someone has watching the exact same effect if the way that they're introduced to it is, I want to show you a really cool trick versus... I have. This I'm a wizard. Gift. <laughs> right, you're. I'm a wizard, Harry. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Imagine if Harry Potter had like gone to his first day at like, you know, uh, at 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 Hogwarts, and like before he walked in, they were like, "Now you're going to be really impressed, but just remember, it's all special effects." Right. You know that it's a very different experience based on what you're uh, what you're told you're observing. Yeah. Well. Maybe even if you wouldn't go to this place because it's uh, a breach in integrity of of the showmanship, but are you ever tempted to really to to play the wizard role instead of being transparent that you're doing these illusions? Oh yeah, all the time. Are you yeah. kidding? Every every second <laughs> of the day, it's incredibly yeah. tempting. I mean, that's why people that's why people did it. Um, there's a financial incentive. There's a there's an ego incentive. You know, to to be the thing that people desperately want you to be and that they want to be real but i think there's a way to get i think there's a way to get that out of it anyway without being dishonest and that's sort of what the whole show is about is that there's a way to to have a séance right or or talk about these things and acknowledge that they may have been achieved with duplicity but that the emotional experience was still genuine and still important Right, and so the, that to me is the interesting question: is how do you take a dishonest endeavor and and extract a honest emotional experience from it? Right, how do you sort of not throw the baby out with the bathwater? Got it. So, the what would be an example of uh, like an an honest emotional experience somebody might get? So, for example, I in my show, um, it was important to me that I didn't shy away from doing the things that an actual seance would have entailed, right? To me, the, the, I sort of had no interest in making a, a a table float and going, there, you see, ghosts are real or, or, or not real. Because fundamentally, all of that, all the effects, all the, um, all the theatrics, right, were all in service to a very specific point, which is that the soul survives after death. And that there is some way to contact that, right? So all the table floating, all the ectoplasm oozing out of your mouth or whatever the stunt leading up to it is, fundamentally, that's all in service of the point the, the medium intends to eventually make, which is I can talk to your grandmother for you, right? And so if, if you stop short of that line, you're not, you're not really talking about that era. You're not really talking about that art form. So... Uh, in my show, I do ask people to think of of people who have passed away that they've known, and I and I sort of preface it with, you know, I cannot speak to the dead for you, but then I I do everything I can to to guess those names and to tell them about that person, right, and and sort of give them the experience. And what they what you find doing that is that 
the reaction is almost the exact same, right? Because the thing you're tapping into, which is which is that emotional connection to that person, right, is still is still real and is still happening in real time. Got it. I'm sure it's a range of experience people get, but is um is it like often just I don't know maybe like grief or something or just like unfinished healing or wounds with that person is the idea that everyone has some relationship with people who are dead and you're like helping provide this illusion to kind of illuminate the relationships they have with these dead people and to bring out whatever emotions maybe haven't fully been processed or come out. Is that a relatively decent reflection? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've thought about that a lot of, of, of what exactly is the emotion that I'm seeing. And, and I, and I tell everyone as they're sort of walking into the experience when, and I'm asking them to think of this name, you know, it, it, you don't have to choose something that's going to be upsetting. You don't have to choose something raw. You know, if, if it's important to you, if you want to, you absolutely can. But I'm never going to, I'm never going to like exploit force that. Yeah. Right. I'm never going to force yeah. people to relive a trauma or, or, or exploit someone's grief for theatrical gains, you know, uh, un- unless they are, unless they are volunteering for that with their eyes sort of wide open to what's going to happen. But I've thought a lot about what that emotional experience that I'm observing is, and I think it's more than anything, it's longing. There's there's this great quote from um, a book on the era, and it the author said that every ghost story starts with a love story, and that really got to me. I, I that hadn't really occurred to me, but it's true, right? The the reason we're interested in the question of survival is because the notion that love just ends when the body ends is unfathomable to most of us, right? That, that, uh, that something as strong as our love for this other person simply, simply ends once that person's body ceases to function doesn't make any sense, right? And so I think even if you're telling them, I can't talk to that person, they're, they're not literally in this room with us right now, you're giving them a chance to talk about that person, and it's a 13-person show. You're giving them a chance to share that person with other people, right? And and in in all likelihood, that might be the closest we get to keeping someone alive after death. Dude, yeah, that's that's fascinating that that idea of love, because certainly, like I I know what it's like to love someone. And the texture of that love, it does fundamentally change when a person dies. It's not, it's not the same experience loving a person as it was when they were alive. Do you relate to that feeling of longing at all yourself that you see in some of your guests? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's like a circuit. You, know? it's, if you, you go your entire relationship with this, with this person, with this consciousness, right? And it's... It's 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 all this energy sort of flowing to a focal point. And then all of a sudden that point is gone. That focal point is no longer there, right? You can't call that person anymore. You can't talk to that person anymore and have them talk back. But the energy is still there and it has nowhere to go. Or at least it feels that way, right? I think it's the most natural thing in the world to be looking for somewhere else to direct that energy, to, to try to find where that 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 target went you know to recomplete the circuit yeah absolutely I, i'm curious did did you get brought into this world of fascination of seance 
because your own relationship to like the emotions contained with the dead circuitry you're talking about or was it more like the aesthetic or the history no, of it? No, and I and I should say this that is a that's a portion of the show. You know, the the part where I sort of ask people to share things. The whole show isn't a support group. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a small portion of the show. You know, it's also about the history of it and it is about the theatrics, you know, it is somewhere between a play and and uh, and a a ride and a and a magic show and a uh, hopefully fascinating history uh, class, you know, because for me the the history of this is fascinating because it, it it evolves very much in moments of sort of national collective trauma, right? You see huge surges in in the spiritualist movement after the Civil War and again after World War One, right? Which I which I don't personally think is a coincidence, and so. The show is kind of about that, right? It's not so much about whether ghosts are real as much as why do we care so much if they are, right? What drives us to be asking that question? Um, I, to answer your question that led me on that very long-winded uh, exposition, um, no, actually, it started just as a as a. Uh, I'm a fan of the aesthetic, you know. I loved haunted houses growing up. I love, um, you know, that whole period. <laughs> I love experiential theater. Um, my background is in theater, and so you know, for me, finding ways to integrate that with what I do now has always been interesting to me. And the truth is, I, I started the show about five years ago, and at the time, I, I was kind of lucky enough that I hadn't really lost anybody I was too close to. And then, you know, that was five years ago, and obviously things change and. I had a year about a year and a half ago where I think I went to like five funerals in in the span of six or seven months. And my relationship to the show changed a lot and the show changed a lot as a result of that, you know, because you can't know what you don't know. Yeah. What what shifted in your relationship after that like spree of experiencing death? I started to understand how careful you have to be with people's memories and and with emotions like grief which even with clear warning and even with all the sort of caveating that you can have it, it, it they're unpredictable emotions you know you 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 find yourself not crying when you think you should and then all of a sudden you catch a, a, a whiff of a cologne in the air and and you're you're bawling on the R train you know and it's just the the un the unpredictability of those emotions was something i didn't really understand until i i i i spent time with them myself yeah what do you believe happens to people after they die if if anything i'm just curious how that fits into your perception of reality yeah it's a tricky question because what i know is i know two things for sure i know i don't know and I know I don't trust anyone who tells me they do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which yeah, is the same awesome. way I feel about God. Mm. You know, and and pretty much pretty much anything um that existential is is falls under that that framework for me. Mm. Okay, so just a mystery. I I mean it, it is a mystery. I think I think there's a good chance the answer's nothing. 
I think there's a very, very, very good chance the answer's nothing, and I think that is, uh, you know, it's an irreconcilable reality. But seems like it's got a good shot of being of being the truth. <laughs> what do you think? Fundamentally, I agree with you that I don't think we can know. Uh, to, but I, honestly, like. I also wonder if this is something I wonder about life in general of to what extent does does the stories I believe about reality to what extent does that actually affect reality so some folks might say not at all and there's some like objective reality like when you die you're gone and that's it whatever you believe doesn't really matter I, I that might be possible I have no clue um I also wonder, like, I'm in a lot of circles where people believe in, like, past lives and believe that there's some spirit that uh, contains your, well, I don't know, I don't really know how that stuff works, but some spirit that contains your uh, something or other that when you die, that lives on and it, other lives come through and you're working through your karma, blah, blah, blah. I believe the technical term is horcruxes. Horcrux, what's that mean? I've never heard that. It was a Harry Potter reference. Oh, okay, got it. Your listeners will get it, I assume. <laughs> or maybe I'm mispronouncing it. I don't know. No, I'm a, I'm a Harry Potter noob. Though I've seen all the movies, I, I still okay. missed the book train, even though I was in middle school when it came out, which was like prime time. Yeah. But so, so be it. Um, but yeah, I I have a sense, though, that at least my personal feeling is I think Mike is going to die when I die. Like this human is going to be gone. I don't I don't know if I have a spirit that's going to live on but I have some sense that there's something behind my felt perceived reality that's that's holding it all. There's some like fabric that's holding my experience that I can tap into when I'm in a deep awareness. And I have a sense that that thing, whatever it is, is going to keep going after Mike dies. And I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means I can still touch into that when I'm dead. I don't know if it means I am that. I have no clue. But Right. but it feels it feels true it does feel true yeah and i've had some uh i'm i'm quite interested in psychedelics and i'm interested in meditation just because yeah i i am as well i'm i'm big into mindfulness cool cool yeah um yeah i'm curious to hear your perspective in that sense but I, part of the reason oh, absolutely. I find, we'll get into that totally yeah part of the reason i find those two uh, areas compelling is just because they've introduced me to like some trippy weird ass experiences that I didn't know were possible that just shook up my worldview. And a lot of, I've had experiences on psychedelics and experiences. Uh, I did this kind of crazy, this darkness retreat a couple years ago where I was essentially in a cave sensory deprivation for four and a half days. And it was really trippy, but I got to think about death a lot. And in those experiences, there's, there's something that can happen of like foregoing my sense of self and really letting go of the sense of self and letting it die. And I don't know if that replicates actual death, but it, it feels like it's touching into something. And wait, what's your experience with mindfulness? How has that worked itself into your, your life? Well, I, I struggled with anxiety and neuroses, you know, for a long time, mm. being the, the Jew that I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and about um, a year and a half ago, a friend got me into uh, Dan Harris's book, mm. you know, 10% Happier. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I read that and, or, and then I read skeptics, uh, uh, meditation for fidgety skeptics. And I, even the title, I was like, Hey, that's me. Uh, and it, and it was, it was life-changing, you know, it, it, 
it unwound a lot of the um a lot of the sort of hard and fast beliefs I, that I had about about things and about spirituality. You know, I I think if you'd asked me before I meditated, you know, I I would have told you I'm a strict materialist and that that matters. Now I would tell you I'm a strict materialist and I'm not convinced at all that that matters. Because because all that exists is our experience, right? And we're we are always within it, right? And so the only thing that that matters is improving that experience and the experiences of those around us. And you know, if if believing in something that's not strictly ontologically true improves that experience, you know, what's the harm? You know, if chakras become a effective metaphor for relaxing your your physical body, right, and decreasing tension or decreasing pain or or whatever, you know, as long as you sort of understand that that's a metaphor, I I think it's incredibly valuable, right? And that you can retrain the brain, right? That you can train your mind out of patterns, that the mind works like a muscle, you know, and can learn memory and muscle memory the same way your, your, um, you know, your, your fingers can. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It seems like there's a, and it it makes sense, but it seems like there's a strong overlap of uh, people who are like experienced mentalists and and people who also hold a general materialist worldview. Yeah, oh, definitely. I mean, it's it's true across magic and mentalism. Um, you know, save for like some very like small sort of. Um, I mean, actually, you know, I shouldn't say that that's not true. You know, you go to the middle of the country, obviously, that changes entirely. You know, believe it. There's a whole genre of magic called gospel magic, where you know p- people do very, very, very simple magic tricks usually but in service of sort of teaching the gospel um, and not p- trying to pass those tricks off as frauds. You know, they, it'll, you know, literally be like sawing a woman in half and then putting her back together and then going, now what I did was just a trick, but you know, but our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ, you know, and then uh, using it as a metaphor to teach. I'm not quite sure how it's supposed to work to be perfectly frank. Yes. Cause if I was watching that, I'd be like, but how do you know he didn't cheat? <laughs> you just, you just told me you cheated. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so. That's such a fascinating idea, though, of like using magic to like stir up a sense of awe or emotion and then right, using but, that but sense undercutting of awe as like a it gateway first. into. Right. But for undercutting it by like, admitting that you were cheating. I don't, I don't quite cheating. follow. But yeah, it's. Um, but there's, I, at least in the circles I run in and. and um, in terms of more uh, prominent magicians and mentalists, there's definitely a lot of, you know, Pendulette's a, a very, very vocal atheist. Uh, Darren Brown out of, you know, England is a uh, vocal uh, skeptic and atheist, and I assume materialist. Um, and I think that's just the notion of anybody who who sort of likes to open things up and sort of look at how they work, which is what magic is, right? You, you, you become a magician by seeing something impossible refusing that explanation and then chasing down uh, the 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 workings of it until you find them right that is the only way you can become a magician right there's no way to become a magician without that journey right regardless of how you got into it regardless of whether you started with youtube or books or at a magic shop 
you know, at some point you saw a magic trick, you saw something impossible, and you said, nah, I'm gonna figure, I'm gonna, I'm gonna understand that, right? And then and then you 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 found that explanation so much more interesting than the trick, right? That's the difference between a magician and a lay person is a magician is someone who learned the secret and went, that's way cooler. Dude, that's that was a fascinating breakdown of just like the the like ruthless hunt to get to the bottom of yeah, it. Yeah, I mean it, it's ten- you have to have a bit of tenacity, right? You have to you have to find you have to find the workings of a thing more interesting than the thing itself. Yeah, okay. I'm I'm curious about tenacity. That's something I've been thinking about just in like um a greater scheme of just being a human, you know, trying to figure out life, trying to live out one's purpose. And I like it's it's cool. It's it's cool researching you and just seeing the way that you're progressing and like all the sweet stuff you're doing. And I'm curious if there's been just like low points or challenges on your journey and where you found the tenacity to keep pushing forward into creating this like very unique and authentic offering. Well, that that that's a very very kind compliment because you know I think um, I was just talking about this with a friend that I I you know most of us in the arts have have some degree of imposter syndrome, and if you don't, there's probably something wrong with you. <laughs> right. you know, right, you're probably if you're, if you're totally confident that you deserve everything you have, I'm a, I'm a little bit weary of you. Um, right. <laughs> But right. you know, that's probably the person who claims that they're doing magic and not doing tricks. Yeah, but you know, especially <laughs> you know? in my profession, there's always a little bit of a of a nagging voice in your head telling you, "You're a fraud." You know, and in my case, I'm literally a fraud. Like that's my job is to be a fraud, and so that voice has a lot of credibility. Um, yeah, got a lot of legs yeah, so to stand on. You up. dealt with that um, that voice over. I mean, it's hard. You just power through. I mean, you asked about sort of tenaciousness and low points, and the answer is like, of course, of course, I've had. I've had enormous low points. Um, I've worked, you know, I worked on a project that I was incredibly passionate about for almost nine and a half months, um, writing a script and rewriting. And it was the story that I was deeply, deeply passionate about and deeply interested in it. And it kind of ended up going nowhere. You know, the, the sort of capitalist uh, beast of the art world uh, ended up consuming that project and 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 it became it became sort of impossible for me to pursue it the way I wanted to and you know and that was just nine and a half months of like of blood sweat and tears just evaporated you know and that that sucks of course that sucks but you you get back up because you can't not you know, it, it, it's less tenaciousness and it's more of a bottomless hole, I think. Mm. You know, and what do you, what do you mean by that? I I think if you're successful in probably in anything, I think art 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 likes to consider itself so so different from other fields. But like, I don't know how true that really is, given that I've never really worked in other fields. Um, but. I, I certainly, if you want to be successful in the arts, I think you have to be a little bit of a, you have to need it, you know, it's that you have to need it versus want it, you know, want, want ebbs and flows, right. And want, uh, want gets, can be satiated. Need really can't. And I, I think, you know, Patton Oswald had that show called one of his specials. He titled it, uh, I think talking for clapping and you know, that's the nail on the head, isn't it? 
Was there a moment or like period when you recognized that you had a need and not a want? Just because it's so much easy, it would be so much easier after those nine and a half months to just be like, all right, fuck it. This is too hard. I'm going to get a corporate job or be a barista or give up, give up the dream or whatever. Well, for one thing, I think I would be quite bad at all those jobs. <laughs> There's yeah. a little bit, a little bit of this was last resort. <laughs> Oh, you know, this is the this is the first thing I ever I ever found that I I there's two there's two things that I think made me realize that this was what I was kind of built for. Um, the first is when you when you realize you love practicing something. You know, I I always wanted to be an author. I always really wanted to to be a novelist or a screenwriter, and I loved I loved the feeling of finishing a script or 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 an essay or a chapter. I hated writing them. Mm. You know what I mean? I I hated <laughs> writing them. I hated doing the work. Yeah. I just loved walking in, you know, in a tweed jacket, you know, <laughs> to a writer's group. Like, <laughs> you know, I loved the aesthetic of, of being a writer. Yeah. 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 For sure. Like a little like cob pipe or whatever. And like, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I lo- yeah. <laughs> Fancy pens. <laughs> right. Uh, sitting in a cafe with a MacBook. Despite yeah. not ordering anything like a jackass, love it, love it, love it, love it. Um, love that, dude. That is a hilarious move. But, the no order cafe. And yeah, it's a it's a power move as a writer. That's how you know you've made it. Um, oh, that's too good. Got it. But yeah, you're on the thought um, train that you didn't like but, the practice of writing, though. I I don't think I ever loved the practice of anything quite as much as I loved the practice of magic. It was it was obsessive. You know, I would, I would, I would ride the train extra stops just to cram in a few, you know, a couple extra minutes of, uh, of playing with a, a deck of cards, right. And working on this move that I just learned, especially God in those first, it's less so now just because, you know, I have so many outlets. I, I work, I'm lucky enough that I work a lot and, you know, I, I get to express my magic, you know, at work. So I don't have that need as, as, as heavily outside of that. But in those first couple of years where magic was new to me and I was still learning it, you know, this was when I was like 18, 19 years old, you know, I was just voraciously consuming and practicing and trying to expand my knowledge of it because, you know, it, it there, there was just like hundreds of years worth of, of things to learn that, you know, most of the people around me had, had been learning since they were kids. I got into magic a lot later than a lot of people. Um, you know, and then, and then you finally do it, right? Then you finally do it for someone and it's just, it's just, you know, pure, pure heroin, right? It's just mainlining uh, adrenaline and excitement and validation. It's, it's instantaneous wonder and adulation. You know, when you really nail an effect, you know, you are, you're the king of the world to that person and to that group for, a couple of seconds and that becomes incredibly addictive and you start seeking it out. I think the moment where I knew that I was going to stick with this was just, you know, when I was, when I was turning down things I would have loved to have been doing to do more, to do more of this instead, right. Turning down parties with my friends or, or, you know, or just working myself to exhaustion, but coming home totally happy with that fact, right? No, not not even remotely second guessing the decision. You know, 
working three back-to-back gigs in a single day and coming home and just being like, yes. You know, the thought of not not taking those jobs never even entering my mind. And I think that's that's a pretty good sign that you're doing something something you were built yeah. for. What what are the skills that are at like the forefront of either like where you're expanding into as a mentalist right now or just whatever's like the next growing edge just as far as uh, actual skills go? Well, uh, the mentalism uh, part of what attracted to me that is is it it played to my strengths in a way magic didn't. Um because it's in, it's entirely about people and I I love people. I love talking to people. I love talking to strangers. My mother is the most uh charming human being you'll ever meet uh and and i was lucky that i i got to watch her growing up and i and i learned a lot from her about you know just sort of opening up to people and and seeing the best in people quickly um and and mentalism is all about that it's all about forming a connection with someone and and doing doing something that's genuinely about them in some way. And and on top of that, you know, there's a little bit of a con to it. You know, it's a little bit like pulling off a heist. You know, you're you're working in the shadows. You're 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 putting on this exuberant play of charm and and extroversion and 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 excitement and mystery, but underneath that play, there's all this stuff that has to happen that they cannot be aware of, you know, and that is incredibly exciting to me. And so that tends to be the, the kind of stuff that, that draws my, uh, my interest. I can't fully imagine what it's like, but I, I get the sense that you're giving the audience something. And on the inside, though, you've got this whole other world going on. So they're, they're getting some appearance, some mirage, and you know, in the background that like, you're doing all these things, you have to keep your cool, you have to have a, have a persona. And I'm wondering if that um, the way that you show up to mentalism performances, does that bleed out at all into your other social interactions outside of performance? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, you try to check that, but, you know, it, it, of course it does in some in some ways, you know, you especially if I'm coming from a show and I'm sort of wired and I'm still on and still in character a little bit. And it's weird because you're playing a character who looks like you, sounds like you and has your name. Right. And so nobody makes that, nobody's making that distinction except you. And that's exhausting because you're, you are playing someone with superpowers, right? You're playing a psychic or you're playing a wizard or you're playing Sherlock Holmes, right? Even if you're, even if your claims have nothing to do with psychic powers, right? Even if you're claiming everything that you're doing is rooted in psychology, which it very well might be. You're still a, an exaggeration, right? You're still displaying superhuman levels of all those things, right? Superhuman powers of suggestion and persuasion, superhuman powers of observation and deduction, right? Which you you don't have outside of the stage because you don't those powers don't exist beyond the theatrical conceit. But no one really knows that but you. Except maybe the people who know you better and know you well enough to know better. Okay, so when you're on stage, like you're playing the persona, you're living out the super wizard Jason, and also there is some like implicit contractor agreement with the audience. Like they've bought a ticket, they're there, they're they're buying into that dynamic also. But but it makes me wonder, like, what would happen if you just 
acted like your performance persona all the time. <laughs> like, I, I'm just curious what life would be like if you walked around well, like that. I think you'd be, I think you'd be unbelievably successful and unbelievably lonely and stressed and and tired by the end of it all. I have to imagine. That sounds like an incredibly exhausting life. What makes you think though that that would lead to success in some capacity? Well, I mean, if I I think you you'll just you'll become that character to people. You know, people will see you as this superhuman and I, that will expand your success, but you will you will be defending that character and those claims for the rest of your life. I mean, look what happened to Uri Geller, mm, right? Which I'm not familiar with that. Oh, um uh, Uri was um a mentalist by by trade uh came here from Israel in you know sort of the late 60s and went on sort of all the TV shows with this one trick he claimed he could bend metal with his mind and you know that was the genius of it is he 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 kept his his power small and believable you know if he claimed he could he could you know push a spoon through a brick wall everybody would have gone magic trick right but he, he, he was like, no, 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 I can just bend it a little bit, right? And so he, he would do this amazing stunt where he would t- borrow spoons and keys and even coins and, you know, he would make them bend. And it was, it was, it was an illusion. It was a trick. But he became wildly successful but was hounded by skeptics and hounded by critics um, and was eventually sort of uh, exposed on live television by Johnny Carson. Uh, who you know was himself a magician and consulted with the amazing Randy James Randy, who was a uh, magician and sort of professional debunker, you know, and and sort of exposed how Uri was doing it. And when they finally put controls on it, you know, wouldn't let him touch the spoons, wouldn't let him see the spoons before the show. He he couldn't do it. And now he's kind of a uh, a bit of a pariah, but he's fabulously wealthy. You know, and and to this day, he still has to defend those claims a little bit. Wow, there's just something about that. Uh, I imagine the clip of him getting busted. That's just like so many emotions. It's on YouTube. Oh man, I, I want to watch it's, it. It's he's he he reaches because everything you know, it's it's misdirection, right? He he's doing things in the shadows, but Johnny's a magician. He knows what to look for, and. Uri reaches for the spoons and Johnny goes, no, 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 will you do it? I'll, I'll hold it. Right. Not just, you know, in sort of Carson, Johnny Carson's normal, jovial, you know, not, not aggressive, but he goes, no, no, no. We, we think it would be better if maybe I just hold it and you can just, you know, you can get close to it if you have to. And so Uri spends five, six minutes moving his hands around it. He keeps trying to pick up another one to like, you know, illustrate something, but Johnny keeps stopping his hand. <laughs> And eventually he goes, you know, or he goes, I feel like my energies are being blocked. I feel like you are blocking my powers. Uh, like this was a challenge and I, I can't perform under these conditions and just kind of like wow. walks off the show. That, dude, that's so um, remarkable. If I recall. The, the do you, so do you think that he had convinced himself, like he like lost himself? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You can't, you can't reach that level of cognitive dissonance. You know, there's, I, I always say there's two kinds of psychic performers. Um, there's great performers who know they're full of shit and there's true believers who put on terrible shows. So why would a true believer not be able to put on a good, a great performance? 
<laughs> because the tricks are better because the tricks are better than nothing. You know, if you if you believe you have if you really believe that you can speak to the dead for example, really believe and therefore are not relying on any kind of trickery, right? Whether that's researching the crowd or having plants in the audience or or um uh you know, sort of technical cold reading. If you're just relying on your belief that you can do it and you can't actually do it at least in my opinion, you know, who's going to put on the better show? And I don't think that there's any way to have an to, to, to sit backstage and and sort of wire up your inner earpiece, you know, as as um, certain television mediums who shall not be named have done, right? And then still convince yourself, you know, that you've got that, that you've got the sight, you know. So I think it's generally one or the other. That eerie thing reminds me of uh, I was watching. Joe Rogan podcast with like I think it was with Sam Harris maybe uh, a year or two ago and there was this some kind of like tai, tai Chi martial artist I think I I think I I think you know I, I know the yeah, the one Kung you're Fu, talking tai, about tai Chi or something and he was some master of a dojo and he had like this, the guy who could push people exactly right? yeah but he had like this hypnotic spell on his whole dojo where he would like touch a finger and they'd go flying and it seemed like everyone was just yeah I, those reality. videos are great but yeah they're so absurd but then of course he but it's he not. got his ass whooped they like challenged him against some BGJ. <laughs> Oh yeah, it was a it was a he got obliterated. He got obliterated. Essentially, he got Johnny Carson. You know, yeah, he got Johnny Carson, and that's not even an old stunt, right? Like that's just all the all he did was reappropriate sort of Christian revival stunts. You know the the even you know the the tent revival shows. You know where you bring people up on stage and you banish the devil from them, and you know all you do is you sort of. Uh, you, 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 I'm going to, I'm going to push the devil from you. I'm going to push the devil from you. And you shoot out your hand and that person goes flying back across the stage, you know, convulsing and, and, and speaking in tongues, you know, but, you know, of course you, you, you apply even the most uh, loose of test conditions to any of this and it, and it tends to fall apart. But so with that kind of stuff, do you, I mean, obviously we don't really know, but do you have a sense? That's fascinating. Is it like just, is there like some hypnosis or like suggestion going on where it seems like they, they're bought with the Christian thing too. It's like the healer is pretending to believe it or does believe it. And the person he's doing the Christian whatever thing on seems to also believe that they're getting a demon extracted. And so that's why it, but is that what's happening? Like some suggestibility hypnosis kind of thing you think? Absolutely. Absolutely, it's a co- and don't forget this is happening in front of a hundred thousand people, right? These are these are massive mega church right. uh, shows full of adrenaline and music and 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 faith and belief, which are powerful and real things, right? You know, it's you and I both practice meditation, so we 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 both know that you can very much alter your 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 state of mind and your consciousness just through just just through the beliefs that you hold and and the the thing the story that you're telling yourself in a given moment. So yeah, I mean, you know, I I I can't say definitively that's what's happening. I'll never I'll never I'll never tell someone I know for sure what their experience of anything was. You know, when people share ghost stories with me, I am fascinated and riveted and I deeply hope that one turns out one day to be empirically true you know i would be i would be ecstatic yeah. 
to find out the answer to the survival question is yes. You know, and so I always say I I I don't know. I I never make the claim that every medium is a fraud. I never make the claim that every ghost story is bullshit. What I say is, you know, in my experience with the with these things, I've never heard anything or seen anything that I couldn't explain or replicate another way. You know, and I know that my you know having practiced meditation, having having learned magic, having thought about these things a great deal. No experience in my life has passed that bar. I like the humility of that, uh, just that framework and approach. But do you ever wonder if when you're doing seance stuff, because, you know, who knows? Maybe I'm like really tapping into something and I just haven't had the consequences yet. All the time, Mike, all the time. (laughs) I go to, I pack up that show alone every night, just like, (laughs) fuck, what if it's real? (laughs) Yeah. Right, because how would I know? Just because, right? Sure. For sure. <laughs> Maybe there's just like some ghost that hasn't been able to like make contact yet, but it's, it's like it's like I'm just like calling their house phone every mm. week <laughs> and just like bothering yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Huh. Yeah, I, I do think about that occasionally, actually. Okay, there's some some things I want to ask you. Just some minor things about. Um, I saw you doing a performance on YouTube. And there are two guys, and one of them you were like touching with a feather. They both had their eyes shut. They were standing apart from each other. One you like touched a feather on their face. Oh uh, yeah, the 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 Charlton uh, forty four. Yeah, clip. yeah, yeah. The N- yeah, the WN the NPR yeah, exactly, yeah. thing. And even though you were only touching one of the guys, they both appeared to be feeling it in the same place. Dude, what was going on there? A great show. A great show, Mike. Dang it! That's that's what I, I thought you were going to say. Something cheeky like that. <laughs> Yeah, you were right. <laughs> you you were right about that. Um, I love performing that. That's one of my favorite pieces. Um, I uh, yeah, I um, you know, I to me it, it's I, when I do that piece. I usually I didn't do it on that clip, but I usually tell a story about the Fox sisters um, who did something uh, vaguely similar. This is a much more modern interpretation of it, but. The Fox sisters um, are the are the girls who sort of started the spiritualist movement um, in 1847 in Rochester, New York. They were these two little girls who uh, basically told their mom that their house was haunted, that they saw a ghost upstairs, and they 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 ran away from him. And he said his name was Mister Splitfoot. And the mother was so terrified, she did the only thing a good religious woman could do in that day. She started selling tickets, and this became America's first haunted house. And these girls became like sort of America's first modern mediums and they would perform and they would summon Mr. Splitfoot and they would do something similar. You know, they would, um, they would ring a bell and he would ring back or they would tap the table and then he would knock on the walls back. And it was incredibly convincing. You know, they, they had all these stunts that they could do with him and with other spirits. And in their, in their sort of later life, Maggie Fox ended up confessing that the entire thing had been a fraud. And for me, the joy of performing these things, unlike magic, is that these are things that people have believed in, right? And and some people still do. And so for me to get to to show it to you and 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 then say, but I promise you there's an explanation. I may not give it to you, right? I may not give it to you, but I promise you that everything I'm doing is a combination of 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 of, of deception and psychology and showmanship. 
I think that that makes you re-examine hopefully everything. It makes you go, just because I don't understand something doesn't mean it can't be understood. You know, to me, the joy of magic is that it reminds us we can be wrong. And that that's okay. Yeah. I had a feeling you wouldn't tell me the answer to that question. Yeah, that wasn't really, that was a very long-winded answer that you had zero interest in. <laughs> no, it, it was, it was, a, it's still interesting. And, but you wanted, you just wanted to know the, <laughs> yeah, I wanted the good, the good stuff, but I guess it gives me the sense and let me know how accurate this is, but I guess I just have a sense about the mentalist community being one where like, you're not going to tell me the answer to that because like you said, there's this trait that you and all mentalists have where like, you have to dig to the, you can't help it. You need to dig to the bottom of things. And clearly if I had that quality, I wouldn't stop until I figured out how to do that trick or like how to. And it wouldn't be that hard. Like you want, it wouldn't, it really wouldn't be. You could learn magic. There are magic stores. There are mentalism books, right? But you're not going to because you don't care as much as I did. And that's fine. I don't, there's a million things I'll never learn about because it's just not in, it's not wired into me. Or maybe you will, and it'll turn out that you you are a, a, a magician and mentalist, at, you know, at your core. Right? Yeah, it's yet to be discovered. It's the reason I don't worry about people exposing tricks on on YouTube or things like that, because the reality is, is you know, people could have people for the past 50, 60 years. There's been a way to find the secrets if you really wanted them, right? Even before that, really, but definitely within the past fifty to sixty years, you know, it wouldn't have been hard. You know, you would have gone to your go to your local brick and mortar magic store. You would have bought a thing, right? You know, maybe it would have taken a little bit, but you know. And yes, the barrier to entry is a little easier. You can go to YouTube, but a the kind of things I do for the most part you won't find there because it, again, it's a different tradition. But even if they were, I wouldn't stress about it because I think deep down, the people who want really want to learn those secrets will, and the people who say they do most of the time really don't because what's left after that even though like yeah you're not like going all out to defend these secrets and seem to like you know be pretty open to the reality that youtube exists and there's a shit ton of stuff on youtube it still seems like there is something in the mentalist community of having of of like defend defend at least not making secret your secrets accessible um, or like overly accessible. Oh yeah, but there's something like really cool about that to me. Yeah, I mean, it, it's you're providing a you're prov- you're telling a story, right? You're providing a, an experience, and if that experience doesn't have some degree of mystique and some degree of lore, you know, then you're just a juggler. Not that there's anything wrong with jugglers. Not that juggling can't have lore. Right, yeah. You know what? Right. I take it back. I love my to my all my juggler friends. I am sorry. I apologize for my prior statements. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I think what I meant to say is you're you're stopping short of art at that point. You know, you're you're depriving them of you're depriving them of the joy of getting to imagine this whole this whole world around it you know, this whole history, you're depriving them of that if you make it unmysterious. One of my favorite things is, um, do you know the thing about the Disney World tunnels? No, what's that? So when Walt Disney built Disneyland, you know, it was all built at ground level and it was amazing and he loved it. But the one thing that drove him crazy is you could see the characters 
walking from one park to another park that they didn't belong in because they had to get to the um, dressing rooms. And so when he built Disney World, he insisted that the whole thing be built like 30 feet off the ground on top of a whole series and network of tunnels uh, so that you would never see a character outside of their natural habitat because it was, you know, it was just, it was just a tiny, tiny hole in the veil if you did. And so now there's this whole, you know, underground world beneath Disney that exists, you know, solely to keep the illusion perfect, you know, and I, I think that's a, a, wonderful philosophy for for magic and for for art in general you know when you're when you are trying to build a world for someone Mm. dude when you're trying to transport them amazing i'll just share the reflection that's going on with me i don't know if this will uh relate to you at all but i'll share it because it's very present but so part of what i do is i do coaching work and so there's this interesting aspect of magic that can occur where i mean coaching there's a lot of skills but if i ask certain questions. If I show up in a certain presence, you can like induce a particular state in the other person and ask questions where it brings them into like great states of clarity and great states of like openness. And as a recipient of that, it feels like magic. And then when you learn what's going on, it's like, okay, cool. There's a lot of skills that you can do to create this state for another person. But a question I often sit with is like, how much to keep, keep it a mystery and just let them have a bigger experience and how much to be very open and authentic. Like, yeah, th- this is where I'm at. These are the questions that I'm asking. This is what's happening in my experience right now. Uh, it's just a thing that I've been sitting with. And hearing your perspective on this different world is just, it's giving me a super interesting and refreshing perspective that I'm not used to. So appreciation for you sharing your experience with me. Well, I, I appreciate your appreciation. You know, I mean, it's the question of all art, right? Like, how do you give someone an honest how how do you get to the truth through a lie right which is the question of 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 fiction it's the question of acting it's the question of comedy to an extent right you know all art is is some degree of deception to try to tell some some human truth beautiful yeah, Jason, I'm curious, where can folks find you and what might be some reasons that they would want to look you up? Um, you can find me at jasonsaran.com and jasonsaran, S-U-R-A-N, on Instagram. Uh, if you're interested in seeing my shows, I perform my theatrical seance every month at the Norwood Club, which is a beautiful uh, mansion from from the Victorian era in uh, the West Village. Um I also have a show uh, that I'm a part of at the McKittrick Hotel, home of Sleep No More, called Speakeasy Magic, and uh, it's performed three nights a week by me and a uh, an incredibly, incredibly talented uh, group of of magicians and and wanderers, and uh, yeah, it's a fantastic show as well, and. Uh, those are the two regular things that I do. Um, other than that, you know, I'm I'm always at some strange event doing some strange thing. Jason, I'm super appreciate you coming on and talking with me. This is this has been so interesting. But I remember I was traveling a couple years ago and I met some guy. And he said something that really stuck with me that was it's good to have your worldview somewhere in the range of gullible and cynical. 
but you don't want to be too far on either end. And a lot of the realms that I operate in, there's people more on the gullible side, I would say. And there's some beauty in that. Um, but I, I just appreciate your, just the groundedness of your worldview. It's, it's refreshing to me. And it's, uh, I got a lot out of this conversation, so I just want to give you a sincere thank you. Yeah, it's, and and it was exciting talking to you too. You know, I didn't quite know where, you know, I know you deal with a lot of spirituality, and so I don't want to ever, you know, shit on 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 your 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 worldview or the worldview of your because you know my friends are all in that too, and you know, obviously we butt heads occasionally, but you know, always with love, and I think always with the same goal, which is just to get to a better human experience. Absolutely, yeah. Um, to, to speak to what you just mentioned about like the gullible thing of, of being gullible and cynical, you know, it's not as if I don't have things I believe in that are without evidence. Right. And probably not true. The question I always try, I am, like I said, I am not a evangelical cynic, mm, right, right? right? That where I, I, I think it's always, you know, I think Sam Harris once said, it's, it's always better to know true things. And like, Sam, I love you, but I can I can name I can name a whole lot of situations in which I disagree with that premise. You know, and so like the question whenever I'm like deciding whether to take a leap of faith, the question I ask myself is like, does it matter if I'm wrong? Right? Because life life without a leap of faith sounds incredibly boring and and un un unrewarding in certain ways. So, you know, my question is like, you know, if I take a leap of faith on Reiki, right? If I take a leap of faith on Reiki and and choose to, that as my cancer treatment over chemo and I'm wrong, that matters a tremendous amount. If I take a if I take a leap of faith on Reiki to like fix my headaches that no modern medicine has been able to to fix, right? If I'm right, my headaches are gone. If I'm wrong, my headaches might still be gone, right? Just off placebo. And if I'm wrong and they're not gone, I'm just right back where I started. Anyway, as long as I don't, you know, spend all my life savings on this, you know, and so that's the, that's the, that's the tightrope question that I try to use is like, how much does it matter if I turn, if, it, if I'm wrong about this? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great, it, I, I love that, that, um, that stance. And it's an interesting one. Cause you know, there's the, I, I will believe it when I see it model and the leap of faith I think is, uh, I'll see it when I believe it. Or at least opening up that possibility. Exactly. Or it's like, you know, my, my dad always said um, with gambling, you know, there's nothing wrong with my dad. My stepdad goes to Vegas, you know, every year with his college buddies, you know, for a couple of days. And, you know, sometimes comes back a little richer, comes on, comes back a little poor. You know, it's never a big deal because, you know, his golden rule is it's entertainment, right? You you never gamble with money. You wouldn't you wouldn't spend on just like a party, right? You never, you never gamble with money. You wouldn't be okay if you just lit on fire. And so that's, you know, I think belief kind of is that way too. You know, I, I'm ha more than willing to take leaps of faith, you know, in, in situations where I can afford to be completely wrong about right. it. Right. But if your rent is relying on your gambling money, you know, different story. Right. If I'm, making a decision based on something a tarot card reader told me that's going to have consequences in my life. And it turns out this tarot card reader might have not been, you know, able to read the future from a set of Fisher price cards. You know, that's consequential. If, 
you know, I'm just having some fun and enjoying sort of an experience and, and uh, another perspective than, you know, and a story, then whatever. <laughs> live and let live. Hey, friends. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you got something out of this episode. I know that I sure had a blast with it. If you enjoy this podcast, please head over to iTunes and give it a five-star rating. I'm offering an exchange right now where, if it feels in alignment for you to give this podcast five stars, then send me a message on Facebook, let me know you did it, and then I'll sit down, take some time to grok your profile, and I will write you a thoughtful and sincere compliment. Truly, please take me up on it. And if this episode touched on something you think a friend might find titillating, pass it on to them too. And I just want to say, I bring my utmost sincerity to each of these conversations, and I really do want to spread vibes and information that cause people to reflect and deepen and just live a more honest, kind, and vivacious life. Because I really believe that the state of the world needs everything that we can give it. It needs people to be at full capacity. It needs people to be living their life fully and giving their greatest positive impact to humanity. And so if I can just flick over one domino with this podcast that flicks over a couple more that lead people into living their life fully and giving back to the earth, then by Jove, man, I will be a happy dude. So trying to do my part here and any help, love, and support, I would just so greatly appreciate. And at the very least, I am super appreciated that you listened to this episode and much love, folks. I'll see you next time.